Hello, I'm Wayne, and this is my Iron Maiden podcast, sponsored by Young's Mariner's Pie. Not the Admiral one, or the Fisherman's one. On these podcasts, I look at the songs of Iron Maiden and how they influenced me growing up as a boy in 1980s Birmingham. And I look at the songs today as well, in the 21st century, and see how my feelings have changed. On this episode, I'm looking at the whole album, Power Slave. I'm going to cover the eight songs that I've covered in the last eight episodes, but that doesn't mean I'm going to go over the same stuff. I'll be sort of talking about it as a whole, a thematic whole, and I mean a whole with a W at the beginning of it. In the last episode, I looked at Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and it's quite a long episode, because it's a long song, and nobody complained about this, so that's good news. I did get a slight concern from Goldie Wilson, and he's been in touch before, you may recognise the name. Once again, he's complaining a bit about Adrian's book. He said that last week we had chapter 4, and prior to this we had chapters 1 and 2. And he says, where's chapter 3? And this happened last time, and he's very annoyed about it, because he wanted to know what the shop sold. That's what happened at the end of chapter 2. Someone said, what does the shop sell? And then it ended. And then in chapter 4, it started with the boys around Nico's house talking about the shop, as if they knew stuff about it that we didn't, the listener. He's very annoyed about it. It ruined his week. So I don't know why this is. Maybe Adrian just decided to leave that one out. He said before that he doesn't want to read all the chapters out, and he's only doing selected ones. But I think overall he's read most of them out. So I think we should be grateful, Goldie Wilson. Otherwise he might storm off again. So anyway, other than that, I had kind comments about the episode, but some people asked if me or Trevor had any boating memories, like the Mariner. Well, obviously we didn't have memories exactly like the Mariner, where we were on board a ship and lots of people died in front of us. But yeah, Trevor's poem about wearing a sailor's hat uh, referred to a photograph of him that was put up on the school wall. And in fact, in that photograph, he was standing looking over the edge of a ferry. I don't mean in a sort of suicidal manner. He was just standing by that sort of barrier thing that he can look over the edge of the sea. He was looking back and smiling. But that smile soon turned to horror when he saw it was Mr Douglas taking a photograph and he realised that maybe other people would see it if it was put on a display on the school wall. I obviously was on that ferry as well, on the French trip, but uh, I don't remember anything in particular. Um, That's not because I was being sick or anything. I just don't remember the, the ferry journey much. I used to like doing canoeing, and I've done that a couple of times. Uh, I've done it at Drayton Manor Park and Zoo, and Ward End Park, the local local park. I also had a session at Stets for Trimming Baths, but I don't want to talk about that. Anyway, we're on the album review, Power Slave, and uh, it's very exciting. I've looked at the eight songs in separate episodes, so hopefully you've heard those already. Maybe you're going to start with this, and then decide if you want to hear those eight episodes as a sort of test. Well, I hope I passed that test. But uh, yeah, what's unusual about this series, which is series five, is this is the shortest series to date because there's eight songs on the album and that's it. Um, With the number of the beast, there's eight songs as well. But of course, there was Total Eclipse as an extra song. With the debut album, that's got eight songs on it, to me anyway. Plus I added Sanctuary as an extra episode. So all the previous albums or, or series... I've had more episodes than this, so I hope you don't feel shortchanged. When you hear someone say the name of an album, what do you think of? And this could be anyone, not just Iron Maiden. 
When someone says the word power slave or the words the number of the beast, what do you think of first? Maybe picture those words in your head, written down. Maybe think of a couple of songs from the album first, or maybe a theme or, or a type of sound, or maybe the artwork on the, on the front cover. I think you, you might have a different answer depending on the album or the artist. But I believe that Power Slave is such a good album that you think of all of these things at the same time. The songs, the theme, the sound and the album sleeve. It's all amazing. In those eight episodes where I focused on each song, I noticed there were some consistent themes across the album. These were war, Egypt, swords, and if you're Trevor, maybe eggs. These are all literal themes, and anyone can see these in the lyrics or the titles of the songs or the artwork. But also, deep within them, there's this feeling of being alone and vulnerable. In Ace is High, uh, there is alone in the sky in a cockpit. And back in the village, the, the person's alone in this weird village. The mariner, alone at sea in the ship. There's, there's all of this beyond the surface. And this makes the title of the album perfect, Power Slave, because we aren't all powerful. We're all slaves, uh, and just slaves to being human. I see the album as having three sides. Now, this is ridiculous, because an LP or a cassette can only have two sides. That's the nature of them, that sort of flat shape, whether it's the, the square of a cassette or the round of a, or, of a record, uh, also known as a circle. There's only sides A and B there, whereas a compact disc has only got one side. I don't know why I'm telling you this, because you know it. Um, anyway, the uh, album is split into three sections then. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Uh, the first two songs are about war, Aces High and Two Minutes to Midnight. Then there's Lost for Words, which I see as a bit of an intermission. Now, this might sound a bit cruel, but it is an instrumental, so it's a bit, it acts as a gap between the next two songs, which are about swords. Flash of the Blade and The Duelists. So there you go, there's that split between those two sections. And then of course, you flip the record over, or turn the cassette over, and, and then there's side B. Maybe I have difficulty linking those three songs, but that's just an extra section of the album, isn't it? Aces High and Two Minutes to Midnight start the album, and they were the two singles off the album. While doing this series, I was lucky that Tim Burgers on Twitter did a listening party for the album Power Slave which meant that it was in the spotlight. The band themselves joined in tweeting about the songs as thousands of people listened to it at the same time. It's quite interesting that Steve Harris said in one of those tweets that he felt that Aces High should have the Churchill speech at the beginning of the album, because that sounds right, he said, or he tweeted. I think some people might agree with this because people are used to that with the live performances where they had that Churchill speech. On the album, I'm glad it's not there. I think I like the fact that the song starts abruptly and you're drawn in and you get the feel of that momentum immediately. Whereas if you had Churchill's speech, you'd sort of be sitting there a bit, waiting for it to start and wonder whether to tuck in to your first minstrel or Malteser. So Steve Harris is using Twitter nowadays. Of course, in the past, he'd have used a diary to keep a record of his thoughts. And I believe now is a good time for... Steve Harris's diary. Steve Harris's diary. Steve Harris's diary. Steve Harris's diary. 
November 1984. Tours go nicely, just finishing off Europe and then we're off to Canada. I joke with Dave after a show in West Germany that we're going to drink Canada Dry after all the beer we've been having lately. Now he keeps buying me Canada Dry tonic water as a joke. I keep telling him I didn't mean that. I'm disappointed that Power Slave only got to number two in the album charts. It's our best album yet, in my opinion. It was only a compilation that kept us off the top spot, though, so we're still the best-selling artist. Funny enough, they came out the same week as albums by Motorhead and Jeff Tull, so it's nice to beat them anyway. I'm wondering how I can top Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It's going to be difficult. It's a great song. Well, I thought that about Phantom of the Opera and Allowed. But I haven't got time to think about that, though. I need to live in the moment and enjoy it, like the fans do. It's all gigs and 7-Up and the occasional game of Monopoly on the World Slavery Tour. I thought we'd lost the Iron Piece the other day, and that led to a big inquest. Can't play without it. Luckily, it turned up in one of Nico's socks, along with one of Dave's plectrums and a fruit pastel. Talking of socks, Rod's hoping to get us a deal with Puma for the next tour, so we can lounge about in sports casual wear after the show. It's Dave Harris's diary. It's Dave Harris's diary. It's Dave Harris's diary. It's Dave Harris's diary. Well, I've mentioned the themes of the album, but the album cover, the sleeve, is also iconic. I think I've said the word iconic on most album sleeves in the album review specials to date. Um, all of them are good. Yeah, maybe peace of mind isn't so impressive, but that's just my opinion. Of the five albums I've covered, um, I think if you said this was the best sleeve, then it wouldn't surprise me. But the standard's so good. If you said that this is the third best sleeve so far, then I'd accept this as well. If you said it was fifth, then I might raise an eyebrow and ask you some awkward questions. The sleeve shows Eddie as a pharaoh, I mean, it's part of this Egyptian temple that's carved into a pyramid. It's a very grand scene, and you've got like these sphinx creatures either side of it. And it's actually symmetrical, almost. Um, the symmetrical art is good, but uh, the album itself isn't symmetrical, as already established, because there's five songs on side A and three songs on side B. So it isn't symmetrical, like the debut album or the number of the beast in this respect. This temple takes up most of the front cover, and there's like a small procession approaching the temple. It's going up some steps. I believe this temple is designed for the tomb that's got Eddie in it as a mummy. Um, I think this is a reference to the aftermath of the incident in Dortmund in 1983, where they killed Eddie off on stage. Maybe this was their way of burying him, but obviously he came back to life, didn't he? In life after death. I mean, life after death. I don't know if there is a narrative between the album sleeves, but I used to think there was as a boy because there's this man standing by a wall and then he goes killing and then he's rampaging with the devil and then he's locked up in a padded cell and now after being killed off he's being taken uh, and being mummified in this tomb. I think there's a story there. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. The detail on the sleeve is very good. It's not just about this main image. If you look closely, there's lots of little details, little hieroglyphics, which is Egyptian writing, um, symbols like the Eye of Horus, which I've already spoken about. There's also a few little hidden messages. There's a, a message that says, What no Guinness? And 
Indiana Jones was here, 1941. So these are funny. There's also Mickey Mouse, um, which is obviously ridiculous because that, that wouldn't be the case in ancient Egypt. There was no Mickey Mouse. Um, so, sorry if I've ruined it. Uh, but it's funny that Derek Riggs has used Mickey Mouse again because we saw Mickey Mouse on the Twilight Zone cover. Um, so that's interesting. Maybe he liked uh, Mickey Mouse. There's also two rude words hidden in those uh, engravings or those bits. Um, I won't mention them, but uh, yeah, look out for those. And this is a bit like uh, an appetizer for the next sleeve, the Somewhere in Time album cover, which has got loads of little references on it and little details. Um, so this is good. If the Power Slave album was an appetizer, then it would be like an artisan farmhouse pate served with some warm rustic bread. The sleeve is also quite different in tone, and I mean that in maybe atmosphere and colour. It's predominantly blue, and this is sort of a goldy, browny colour that, that the temple's made of. Um, and it's like a daytime scene uh, for the first time, you know, sunny skies, away from those dark lamppost-lit evenings that we're used to. The logo of Iron Maiden isn't red either, this is the first album without that. It's like a gold colour. It's almost tucked away in the top corner. It's quite small. It doesn't take up a lot of the, the sleeve anymore. So this is an interesting development. They used this sleeve detail on uh, the World Slavery Tour that followed. And uh, yeah, a very impressive stage set. They brought back a couple of times on follow-up tours in the 21st century. Those sort of retrospective tours. Very popular. And that's the outer sleeve. If you look at the inner sleeve, I've mentioned this photo of the band standing by this sort of tomb, this uh, mummy thing, the thing they put a mummy in. I probably should have looked up what that was called. They cut like the coffin. They're standing next to it. I think they're probably genuinely in Egypt because uh, nowadays a band would, would just use like a green screen, wouldn't they, to pretend they're there. But they're actually down in this sort of tomb. I suppose they could have been downstairs in a museum. But I think they would have gone to Egypt. Um, I can notice in the top corner there's the, the figure of death, like a smoky entrance. Um, I wonder if Derek Riggs played this part, uh, like he did one of the nights um, on that inner sleeve of Peace of Mind where the band are eating a roast dinner. He probably flew with them to Egypt to keep morale up and laugh at everything they said. When you see photos of Iron Maiden, you can't really predict who's going to stand in which position. You may remember on the back cover of Two Minutes to Midnight, they sort of stood in height order. But here, there isn't really an order. What they could have done was sort of stand left to right by the shade of their jeans. Quite, quite clearly there's a lighter shade of blue for, for Steve and then there's quite a dark shade of black for Adrian. So they could have done this and it would have been a nice touch. Uh, but what they've done is they've actually lined up as you'd see them on the stage. So Dave's on the left, Adrian's on the right Bruce is in the middle, with Steve and Nico sort of also in that inner section. So that's quite clever. You wonder why they don't do that more often. You may remember that I mentioned the package from Paul Diana and how there was a cassette in it uh, that relates to this episode, or rather he told me to play it in this episode. Um, so there's also a letter with it, so listen to this. Dear Wayne, I write with great news. The Prime Minister is announcing an easing of restrictions in March so we can meet up again. You know this, of course, but you had this letter from me in this package months ago. Anyway, 
this announcement is just right for the Somewhere in Time series, so I'm looking forward to catching up again for that. It's almost as if the Prime Minister's a fan of the show and he's done this deliberately to benefit the wider society. Now Power Slave is done, you can have a listen to this cassette. A band called UB40 were doing some covers albums in the mid-80s and wanted some songs to include that weren't already reggae. They had a go at Power Slave and Steve clearly wasn't impressed. Be like the Depeche Mode story. I don't know the story behind this one, of course, but I found the tape amongst his staff, so I thought you might like to hear it. By being in your present time, I learned a lot about a word called photobomb. I'm going to go and visit several famous Iron Maiden photos throughout time and photobomb them. And this will change those famous photos that you know, but only temporarily. I don't want a pixie taking back this power, so I've got to be careful. So watch out for these photos anyway. <laughs> it's just a bit of fun. So I'll be calling for you soon, Wayne, so keep a look out. Yours sincerely, Paul Diano. Okay, so you've heard the letter. Um, I'll play the cassette now and uh, see what you think. Into the abyss I fall, the eye of horrors. Into the eyes of the night, watching me go. Green is the cat's eye, the globe's in his temple. Into the risen Osiris, risen again. impressed with that i don't want reggae music on the show it's not no one wants that but i mean we had synth pop and now we've got reggae and this this is a heavy metal show so i'm sorry about that if you're expecting heavy metal um maybe it was still interesting maybe people like these strange things what's strange about the power slave album is that steve harris only wrote half of the songs this is his lowest percentage on any iron maiden album so if you've done the maths you'll know that he wrote four out of the eight songs. I wonder if this makes the album better because there's more diversity amongst the songwriters. We've now got three prominent songwriters, Steve Harris, Adrian Smith and Bruce Dickinson. As a boy, I saw that Dickinson wrote Power Slave and Revelations on his own. So this meant I liked Bruce on his own because these are good songs. So I looked to see if there was a pattern. I noticed that Smith and Dickinson together wrote Flight of Icarus and Two Minutes to Midnight. So these are catchier songs, but still good. So again, I wondered if there was a theme. And then of course, Steve Harris has written so many songs, so there's bound to be good ones there, isn't there? Phantom of the Opera, Hallow Be Thy Name, Where Eagles Dare, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, many classics already. So again, brilliant songwriter. This was good, and I was confident about what they could produce. However, I noticed that when they all wrote a song together, Smith, Harris and Dickinson. It was Die With Your Boots On. So what happened there? Talking of Adrian Smith, he's the latest in his children's book. Hi, this is Adrian Smith. Uh, another chapter for you from my forthcoming children's book. 
I'd like to thank everybody for getting in touch about uh, the book itself and, of course, the chance to be involved in this current chapter. I was very pleased that people want to be involved and uh, I'm sorry to hear the comments of Goldie Wilson about the missing chapter three. Well, I, I think that's okay. Um, people can fill in the gaps. Uh, one day, of course, this chapter will be available. I also had a comment from regular contributor Martin Chuzzlewit. Uh, I think he's written into the show a few times. Uh, he was uh, concerned that he wouldn't be able to be included because his name might be a, a breach of copyright because he had the misfortune to be named after a, a well-known character in a Charles Dickens book. So, yes, I'm afraid that is correct, Martin Chuzzlewit. Uh, so you won't be included in the book. So I'm sorry about that. Um, I also felt that your idea of wandering around the festival with a bowl of jelly for no reason might be a bit surreal and strange for a children's book. Uh, so, again, that, that may not have been appropriate, whatever your name was. Anyway, um, it's a longer chapter this week, so I need to get on with it. Um, chapter 5, The Day of the Festival. Officer Riggs didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Most police officers would cry when a dangerous villain had escaped into the community, but the sheer ridiculousness of the situation made things confusing. Last night he had returned home from the prison and looked through his art folder. He looked for the painting where he thought he had seen the villain's face before, and yes, there he was, back in the painting with the wall and lamppost. Had he really disappeared from this painting before? Or was Officer Riggs imagining things? He had been working a lot lately. He remembered the scene in the cell and flicked through some more of his sketches. Eventually he found the one he was looking for. A padded room with a gauntlet and beads floating at one side. He vaguely remembered drawing this and was sure that there had been a man or creature inside this room. Now, though, there was nobody in the cell, just as there had been nobody in the real police cell. Officer Riggs laughed and shrieked at the same time. Were the creatures in his sketches coming to life and leaving the paintings and causing havoc in the real world? Luckily, he had today's festival to distract him. He was putting up some bunting at the park entrance. He hoped that nobody would notice that some of the triangles were a bit crumpled after the rowdy scenes at the grand shop opening. Oi. Oi. Adrian and his chums skipped along the street towards the park. They loved the festival, and on the posters they had seen in the village, it looked like there were even more stalls and attractions than ever before. They all paid a shilling to enter and looked at all the excitement happening around them. Bruce picked up a programme and a map, which showed where all the events were. Who look, he said. Goldie Wilson is in the stocks at two o'clock, and we can all throw wet sponges at him. Hooray and hurrah, they all said. They were standing near the bandstand, just as Georgie Whitnell started his drumming master class. Oh, this is good, said Steve, nodding along. But Nico looked sullen. What's the matter, Nico? asked Adrian. I wanted to perform on drums on the bandstand this year, but I'm not old enough, he replied. One day you will perform on a stage, said Adrian thoughtfully, and Nico smiled. They watched for a while, and then carried on walking around the park, looking at all of the stalls. Look, it's the famous Kirsty and Cookie her performing Dashund, said Dave, clapping his hands. Dave had read about them in a magazine, and he knew that they had travelled a long way to perform here. Ooh, and the cat show is back, said Yannick, pointing to a tent. 
It says that Alejandra is the judge, said Bruce, looking at the programme. I hope old Mrs Stratton doesn't win again. That'll be four years in a row. Never mind these animals, said Nico. I'm off to see Mystic Baz Forest. See what's in my future. I want to know if one day I will perform on the bandstand. He raced towards the clairvoyant's dark tent, banging his drum. Oi! Hooray! The others were left to wander around some more. Soon they were in the food and drink area. There were vans selling burgers, hot dogs, ice cream, and something they had not seen before, called pizza. They noticed Don McIntyre was sat eating some, and explaining to Dennis Stratton what it was. The boys listened with interest, as he said that the red and the black things on it were called pepperoni and olives. Yuck, said Dave, and they walked on. They passed a reading display from the Central Region Amateur Poets Society. Local boys Andy and Trevor were reading some of their work, but nobody seemed to understand it. They'd also seen Officer Riggs on some occasions. He would join in with some of the contests, but didn't seem to be as involved as in previous years. He won the Nobbly Knees contest, of course, but he was soundly beaten in the pie-eating contest by a newcomer from Ireland. In fact, a new village record was set by this boy, whose name was Fergal. Some spectators wondered if his pies were cooked properly, as they felt nobody could eat hot fillings this quickly. By the time they had walked round the festival and the day was coming to an end, they saw there was a new act on the bandstand, and the crowd flocked round to watch the Button Pushers, an Irish folk band featuring Corky and Guy. The villagers were dancing merrily to these upbeat tunes, slightly out of control, but not enough that Officer Riggs feared for his bunting. Yannick joined in and did a jig, much to Adrian's annoyance. Steve was transfixed. He liked the idea of being in a band on stage, and the button pushers were wearing waistcoats, which impressed him greatly. It had been a lovely day for the boys, and they all walked home with several goodie bags, prizes and balloons. They went to bed happy, knowing that they had a wonderful, safe community around them, unaware of the weight of pressure on Officer Riggs. Over the series, I've done a bit of singing to demonstrate the challenges that Bruce Dickinson faced when singing some of these lines, because some of the songs are a bit faster, so his speed of deliveries had to be good. I found out that this is called diction. He also remembered a lot of words in Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner when performing it live, and I commented on this and how impressed I was with it. So this is a good album for Bruce. In fact, it's a good album for everybody. The guitars, the bass, the drums. I suppose that's obvious, really. He's also done high notes, like The Duelists and Back in the Village, so he's been testing himself a bit, which is nice. You may remember that I emulated his scream in Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Someone asked if I could put the two together to see what they sounded like, and maybe if I would win in the battle. Um, so let, let's see what happens. Then down in falls comes the... I wasn't aware when Power Slave came out in 1984. I remember seeing it in the album section in WH Smith's in Birmingham. It was a bit like a surprise. Because I used to look at the posters and the records, I always used to look under Eye Fry Maiden just to see what was there. 
Of course, generally, it was albums I already owned. Sometimes there might be a 12-inch single among them, but I wasn't allowed to buy them, as they weren't good value for money, my mum said. This was the same with Star Wars figures. My mum wouldn't let me buy R2-D2 or the Ewoks, because they were smaller figures, but they were the same price as the other figures. Chewbacca and Darth Vader were the tallest, so they were the best value for money, and there was a droid called IG-88, who was tall and thin as well. I used to play football with my Star Wars figures, so these taller figures would play in central defence, so they could deal with those high crosses into the box from Death Star Droid and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Anyway, back to WH Smith. This album was there, so I got excited. I bought it. I've had a message from Dennis Stratton this week. It's time to put on your talcum powder and red leather trousers. It's time to go Beyond the stratosphere Fringing your eyes Fray bentos pies In a world full of magic So don't you stray When you reach the stratosphere It's time to go Beyond the stratosphere, it's time to go. Beyond the stratosphere, la 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 la. Hello, Wayne. Dennis Stratton here. I'm sorry I've not been in touch for a while. I've had a lot of press interviews lately, as you may have seen, about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I never spoke to the press much in the early days. They wanted to talk to Steve or Paul. It's nice to say my bit though, and I hope fans will vote for the band to be in the Hall of Fame. The band deserve it. It's not about me. I've seen some comments online that are a bit cruel, but it is a fact that I was in the band at an important time. If I do get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I can add this to the achievements section on my online dating profile. I might have to buy a trophy cabinet from Ikea. One with a lockable glass door though, so my cleaner can't get to it. Power Slave, that's a good album. A high point in a strange year. 1984. The novelty of it being the 80s had wore off and things were getting tough. Minor strikes, yuppies, and chart music was poor. It was nice to have two minutes to midnight in the top 20. I like the harmonies they used in that song. And I like to think the line in Flesh of the Blade, in a corner forgotten by no one, was written about me. That sums up the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Did I mention this? It may appear that I've been pushed in a corner compared to other members, but I shouldn't be forgotten for what I did. Anyway, hope to be in touch soon. I still listen when I can. Take care, Dennis. I think Power Slave is often seen as their peak era. The band lineup had stayed the same for two consecutive albums, so it was settled, and you could argue, yeah, they've improved again. And that follow-up World Slavery Tour, again, is seen as one of their career highlights. Um, it took them to another level. Now they were definitely a stadium heavy metal band, and famous across the world, and selling out the, the tour dates. It was an intense tour of 189 dates, and if they played Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner on every show, then that's 41 hours of Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Now I like the song, 
But I don't think I could put up with that. It's no surprise that that sort of thing wouldn't probably phase the band. They'd never tire of performing it, and they'd give it their all, even on the last shows. Right, I'm going to give Trevor a ring now, see what he thinks about the album. Hi, Wayne. Hi, Trevor. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Um, looking forward to the album review show. Yeah, well, well that's what we're doing now. We, we, we're in it. Um, so, yeah, if you could uh, tell us what you think about the album. Well, I don't think it's any surprise that I think it's a great album. Um, I don't think many people would dislike Power Slave. Um, I think it's a funny album, though, because you've got four quality songs. The bookend the album, two at the beginning and two at the end. And that might make you think that it's weak in the middle, but the ones in the middle are still seven or eight out of ten songs. It's just that all the others at the beginning and end are nine or ten out of ten. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, the the track placement, I suppose, is a bit strange, but I think it's right, though. I don't think they should split up those better songs. Um, no, I think that's right. I mean, having it in that order might make it sound inconsistent, but that's only because they're so amazing. And if there are any weaker moments on here, if you had to say your least favourite song or, or bit, then that's going to be better than the weaker moments on the albums we've done so far. Yeah, Okay, so with that in mind then, is this your favourite album to date? Yeah, I think it is. It's got a nice feel to it. In some of the episodes, you mentioned the sunny sound and, and that desert. I feel like I'm listening to this album in a hot country when I put it on. I feel like I'm mopping the sweat from my brow. and I'm just wearing a vest and shorts. Didn't you have this album on cassette? I think I remember that you're having it on tape. Yeah, that's right. I bought it from Erdington, from Woolworths. Um, it was after a uh, McDonald's party, do you remember? I think it was Michael Patterson. Yeah, I think so. There are a few McDonald's parties and wimpy parties in the 80s. I forget whose we went to, but used to quite like them. Bit of a treat, a change. Yeah, but you got told off. Did I? Yeah, because when we all put our orders in, you wanted chicken McNuggets. Nobody had chicken McNuggets. You had to have a hamburger or a cheeseburger. I don't think it was... Outrageous, ordering chicken McNuggets, was it? Yeah, they were more expensive, and you got told off. Your mum said, don't be cheeky. Really? Well, surely they weren't that much more expensive. Yeah, they were. Um, they were new then. They'd just come out, so they were a bit expensive, and you had them. And I remember you were disappointed, because there's only six in a box, and we were all laughing at you, and we were there, still eating our cheeseburgers while you'd finished. All right, well, I don't remember this. This is, for some reason, stuck in your mind. Well, that's not the only thing I remember. It was a disgrace. What was? I don't, I don't think it would have made much of an impact on Michael Patterson and his family that I ordered chicken McNuggets. No, it was what happened with the goodie bags. What did happen with them? I don't... What was, we just got felt tips from memory and maybe a few other things. No. Well, yeah, we did. But there was that puppet we got. What puppet? You used to get a Ronald McDonald puppet. Um, it was like you put him over your hand and there was the front of him on one side and the back of him on the other side. It was a bit like a plastic bag material. Oh, yeah, I think I remember those. Yeah, just yeah, Ronald McDonald puppets. I mean, they, they weren't that good, were they? A bit lightweight from memory. Yeah, that was the problem. You poked your finger through it and you poked the finger through where his willy would have been. So you were like waving your finger through saying, look, I'm Ronald McDonald, look at my willy. And it was embarrassing. 
All right, well, can we, we don't have to talk about this now, do we? Why are you bringing this up? Well, it's the same reason you brought Kiss Chase up, isn't it? I'm just getting you back. I don't like it. Um, that party was horrible. We all got told to leave, and it was a disgrace, and some children were laughing, because it was a bit funny, but it was horrible, because I wanted to play past the parcel, and it had to stop early. And the manager said, don't come back here. I still get a bit edgy in Erdington today, in case they recognise me. This was 30 years ago or something, maybe longer. I don't think they'll remember you. And anyway, you were not you were a good boy by the sounds of it, eating all your cheeseburger. Yeah, well, it, was, it wasn't very nice. What's this got to do with Power Slave anyway? Oh, no, nothing really. It's just that I think that was the same day I bought it from Erdington, from Woolworths on cassette. I didn't want to listen to it after the events of the day. Do you remember, we drove home in silence. OK, well, this is the uh, time of the series where we do our top three of the album. Um, so, uh, I don't know, I asked you to prepare your list. Have you got it ready? Yeah, I have got it here. OK, so we'll go through them then. If I do my number three and you do your number three... <sighs> What's the matter? Why don't you just say, you do your, your three and then I'll do my three? Because that's how it works all the time. There's no point in going through this same rigmarole every time. It's not a rigmarole. Yes, it is. Anyway, just let, let's forget it. You do your top three. All right, I suppose that will make a bit more sense. Right then, I'll do my top three then. Number three. Ace is high. Um, it's an excellent opener. Um, nice pace. Um, even though I've heard it a lot. Um, I think that means I play it less, so therefore I enjoy it more than I think I will when I hear it. Um, so, yeah, it makes me happy, especially when I think about the school trip to the Lake District where I sang bits of the song. And got a bit of good feedback from my peers for once. Number two. Drama the Ancient Mariner. I think it's amazing that this song can be number two on an album because um, it's so good. It's, it's got everything. It's epic. I saw recently on an article online, someone had listed their favourite tracks on this album. And this was number four. I couldn't believe that. That's ridiculous. I wanted to sort of undo my uh, my view to the page. I didn't want them to get the click and, and the whatever they get from me clicking on it. To say, oh, look, I've had a click on my article. I'm angry about it. I've wasted my time um, on something that's rubbish. Um, I suppose it's possible that this might be your number four. Um, and number four isn't to be sniffed at but this is my number two um, because it's just amazing and I think, well I only spoke about it last week so I feel like I'm repeating myself but uh, the reasons I think it's amazing are the reasons you think it's amazing that's enough said about it isn't it number one number one is Power Slave and that's because it's probably on a par with Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner but the fact it's a bit shorter just gives it the edge for me um, because not that there's any waffling on Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, apart from maybe my description of it in number two just now. But I think 13 minutes is quite long, isn't it, for a song? And it was their longest song for a long time. And I've saying long too much, and I'm should be talking about Power Slave. I think I've made a mess of it. But Power Slave is seven minutes long, which is still long. And oh, I think like the pressure's getting to me a bit. The um, I think it should be played more live um, and it's possibly my top three songs so far of the five albums um, again listening back to it made me feel that it's just got everything um, everything about it is right there's no extra bit that's unnecessary everything the lyrics the theme the sound is very very good and 
I might have said this about Raptile, but that's only two minutes long, whereas this is seven minutes, and that's a very impressive feat. So yeah, this is their best song on Power Slave, the title track. All right, Trevor, do you want to do your top three? Yeah, I've got it ready. Uh, I've got some sound effects. I've used the same ones last couple of times, um, so I thought I'd try and mix it up a bit. I noticed you're using the same one every series, so I think uh, it's important to move on. Yeah, okay, well, hopefully they're fine. I'll, I'll, I'll let you do that. Number three. Oh, come on. Two Minutes to Midnight. Uh, I think it's a good single. I always enjoy hearing it. Um, bit of a catchy chorus. Uh, maybe it's a bit standard compared to some other Iron Maiden songs. But I really like the instrumental passage in it. I think that's one of the best bits of, of side A on the album. Number two. It's Power Slave. Um, I like it. It sounds like I'm in Egypt. And when I hear it, I feel like I'm tiptoeing around a sort of treasure trove like Indiana Jones avoiding snakes yeah I put a hat on and uh, run around the garden and then roll about a bit pretending I'm in the temple of doom um, but it's my shed number one Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner it's an epic poem but you know that and it's an epic song and you know that as well but I like the fact that they can go on and, and do more than what you expect. Um, in my poetry on this podcast, I feel a bit restricted to four or eight lines because Wayne doesn't give me much time to, to speak and do my poems properly. Um, so, yeah, that might affect the quality a bit. Can you talk about the song, please? But Yeah, right. But listening to this song again, I've been inspired to write some epic poems, maybe longer ones, maybe in different parts. Um, maybe one day I can perform those poems. Maybe here, or an open mic night when things reopen again. Okay, we're looking at that. We've got the same top two, but uh, just switched around a bit. Uh, different number three. But uh, I suppose most people might have those four songs that you mentioned that bookend the album. Of those four, you'd, you'd probably expect them to be most people's top three. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think a lot of people might push some of the others up as underrated ones that they like to hear a bit more often, like I forgot how good the duelist was. Uh, I mean the song, not the podcast episode. Well, you told me not to mention that. Sorry, Wayne. It's okay. Um, great, okay, well, yeah, the end of the series. Uh, thank you for your contribution, Trevor. Great, I've enjoyed it. It's nice, something to do. Maybe I can come into the studio in that series because there's some lockdown restrictions lifting, isn't there? Well, I think it's meeting outdoors, isn't it? So, uh, like Paul Diano mentioned earlier, um, I might be able to meet him, but uh, outdoors. But uh, yeah, I don't know how it will work otherwise. But yeah, we'll, we'll see how things go. It's been hard to plan, hasn't it? Um, I like to do strategic plans. I, I did do those for the first couple of series, but it was hard to plan with the unknown and, and the uncertainty around what was happening in the world. And I feel a lot of people have been frustrated by this, but. Uh, yeah, thanks for, for being part of it, Trevor. I know people appreciate what you do. Great. Well, yeah. Thanks for the support, everybody. Um, and I'll speak soon, Wayne. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Wayne. Bye. Right, uh, yeah, I suppose Trevor has got me thinking a bit. I wonder if this is the best album so far of the five. 
Not sure, really. Um, it's, I, th- I think I, I'd safely say that it's the best album that's got Bruce on vocals. So there you go. There's a snippet for you. Whether it's better than Killers or I Maiden, I'll, I'll save that for another day. I, th- I don't think anyone likes making these choices. Um, is it the best sleeve? Yeah. I don't know. Again, Killers, I really like that one. Rubbish. You want me to be committal, don't you? But uh, no, I'm not going to. You know, you can't make me. It's my podcast. In summary then, what have we learned from the Power Slave series? Well, um, I've learned a lot that I didn't expect. Um, Rudy Dassler. Um, maybe Nico was self-conscious about his belly button. And we found out that nothing magical happens at two minutes to midnight. Um, we also had some strong views on Knickerbocker Glory and pancake toppings. And I also learned that Flash of the Blade was in an episode of Gem, the cartoon in the 80s. So uh, that's good. When I start these series of each album, I want to learn new things. Some of it is not expected. So I wonder what I'll learn in the next series, which is somewhere in time. Um, jumping ahead to 1986. You might be thinking, what happened to 1985? But uh, the band were touring then. Anyway, that's the Power Slave album. So I'll leave you with the title track, or some of it anyway. And uh, hope to see you next week for Caught Somewhere in Time. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.